0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. This episode's gonna be a little bit different than most because we're gonna use a talk from the University of Toronto's updated EM conference in Whistler from this February as a way to look at how we integrate recent findings from the EM literature into our practice. So we're gonna cover a few so-called landmark articles on medical expulsive therapy for renal colic, steroids for anaphylaxis, pain meds for low back pain, antibiotics for skin abscesses, stuff like that. Now, being an optimist, I'm constantly searching for EM literature that'll change my practice in a positive way and ultimately improve the care that I deliver. Yay. Now, 2015 was a year filled with promising papers, some of which received quite a lot of attention. Now, I'm not the only one who's biased towards craving a positive paper. You know, so are the researchers, the journal editors, and the public. We all want our field to mightily move forward. So enter Joel Yaffe. You had to have sexual intercourse at least three times a week an EM residency program director at the University of Toronto, and an eMERGE doc who I admire for his balanced, sensible and practical approach to appraising the literature. So in this episode, Dr. Yaffe at U of T's Update and EM conference in Whistler is gonna lead us through a few key articles from the past year and discuss whether they should or rather should not change our practice. He challenges authors' conclusions and questions whether the findings are relevant to our patients.
1: This is not going to be simply a why this should change my practice. I think there are articles here uh, where the authors would maybe like to change your practice and we'll talk why I think they shouldn't. And I think the, the underlying theme is going to be that sometimes you have to look a little bit beneath the surface.
0: Dr. Yaffe is going to start with the now famous revert trial for cardioverting SVT.
1: Okay, so a 42-year-old comes in, presents with a re-entry tachycardia, an SVT, person's stable. Uh, You want to do something to get them back at the sinus rhythm. Um, How many people use some kind of physical maneuvers to try to get this rhythm back to normal? Okay, what do you use? Uh, Carotid sinus massage? Yeah, some. Valsalva. Trendelenburg. Okay, so people do stuff. It's interesting. I'm going to come back to this, what people really do and don't do at the end. But these authors did a trial to look at a modification of the Valsalva maneuver to convert SVT. And uh, they enrolled about 430 patients. They used a modified maneuver compared to what they said was a standard semi-recumbent Valsalva. The patients. Uh, blew into something which generated 40 uh, millimeters of mercury over 15 seconds. And their primary outcome, they want to see, how many of these people where they did the modified thing returned to sinus rhythm at uh, one minute after the intervention.
0: Wouldn't it be nice if we could avoid nasty meds like adenosine, which by the way, is losing favor as a routine first line med for converting SVT, based on a study showing that calcium channel blockers might be a better option. Anyhow, the Valsalva maneuver converts SVT about 15% of the time, which ain't great. The idea with this new maneuver, which we'll have a video of on the blog post at emergencymedicinecases.com, is that by laying the patient down into a supine position and elevating the patient's legs, you'll increase venous return and vagal stimulation, which will hopefully convert the SVT. So let's hear what Dr. Ayafi has to say about the REVERT trial, this modified Valsalva maneuver. I'll just tell you up front, the number needed to treat is 3.8. Pretty impressive.
1: The results were actually pretty good. They went from, with standard Valsalva, about a 17% rate, to the modified Valsalva, 43%. And they gave less drugs uh, of any kind, less adenosine. It's interesting, they, they ended up admitting... A good chunk of their patients, I'm not sure why, but but the maneuver itself seemed to be effective. From my point of view, there's really no downside to this. It's not that much more labor-intensive. Nobody really knows, you, you know, which of the maneuvers, whether it's the pressure, whether it's the time, whether it's the leg raising. You know, you should know that the Valsalva maneuver actually should be done lying. So they actually compared A modified maneuver to a substandard maneuver. Don't know what would have happened if everybody had done the standard Valsalva maneuver in the supine position. But having said that, if you're gonna do it, it's probably uh, worthwhile trying this. It's interesting that so many people here said that they use it. We, We did this in Journal Club and a ton of our residents said they had never seen a Valsalva maneuver used. They had never seen anything done. Everybody just went to, to drugs. So, so maybe one of the good things about this study is it might make people think that there's other things you can do. And when you send people home, you can give them a 10 mil syringe. Uh, has anybody tried blowing into a 10 mil syringe to move the barrel? Anybody try this? How'd it, how'd it go? It's hard, right? Like they had, uh, I think it depends on the syringe, like, like you can give yourself a pneumomediastinum, I think, trying to do this but you can't you can't budge the standard syringes Um, but certainly outpatient use maybe nurse initiated might be an idea as well
0: so i think there's some room for this so for those of you who haven't tried this maneuver yet it's really very simple there's just two steps and the first one is the traditional selva maneuver and then you add this new part afterwards so you have the patient in a semi-recumbent position Note that Dr. Yaffe said that you might actually be better having the patient in a supine position through the whole thing. Anyhow, you have the patient in a semi-recumbent position doing the traditional Valsalva maneuver. That's for 15 seconds, you blow either into the special device that they had in the study, or if you don't have that, a 10cc syringe. And then in the second part, the patient lies down in a supine position and the ED staff member raises the patient's legs to a 45 degree angle for 15 seconds. Again, the number needed to treat is 3.8 to convert the SVT to normal sinus rhythm at one minute. And don't forget that you can teach patients how to do this themselves so that they can self-convert without having to come back to the ED. Next, we're gonna talk about medical expulsive therapy for renal colic. While many of us have been convinced that renal expulsive therapy is dead, Dr. Yaffe questions this.
1: So we're gonna talk about kidney stones. So a 43 year old presents with renal colic and would you discharge the following on some type of medical expulsive therapy? So you've done a CT, it shows that there's a a distal three millimeter ureteral stone. Do you use any kind of medical expulsive therapy in this patient? How many say yes? Okay. Uh, what about an ultrasound with a proximal 8-millimeter stone? Use anything in that? Are you going to give them medical expulsive therapy? You've made a clinical diagnosis. You haven't done any imaging at all. Are you going to use medical expulsive therapy? This is a study published in the past year in The Lancet, looking at medical expulsive therapy for stones. There has been some support in meta-analyses for both tamsulosin and for nifedipine to promote stone passage. People say the evidence is pretty weak, and some like it, some don't. Uh, this study looked to put this issue to bed, called the SUSPEND study, multi-center study done in the UK. Uh, they had uh, three arms. Uh, these were all stones less than 10 millimeters identified on CT. And the arms were tamsulosin, nifedipine, and placebo. And their primary outcome, and I want you to look at this carefully, their primary outcome was the por- proportion of patients not needing an intervention over four weeks. So how many didn't need an intervention? And so it was four weeks intervention. That's what you need to remember. Uh, they had some secondary outcomes, pain and stone pa- time to stone passage. And there was really no difference in any of the things that they tried to measure. They couldn't show that nifedipine was better than placebo, or that tamsulosin was better than placebo, or that any of them were better than anything else. And they said they weren't <laughs> effective at decreasing the need for further treatment. So the authors concluded, we found no evidence that drugs reduce pain, hastened time to stone passage, or improved health state. Uh, they said that their trial was precise enough to rule out any clinically useful benefit to assist stone passage, and they went on to say that they thought that any other trials looking at medical expulsive therapy were going to be futile. You know, I'm a hard guy to get to change my mind about stuff, so um, I I looked at this and I I, I did have a couple of questions. So this study, they had, as in most studies, 75% of the stones were little stones. I I don't know how many were where, but 75% of them were little, most of them were distal. So there's a huge proportion that are little distal stones they're gonna pass regardless. The passage rate of these kinds of stones could be as high as 90%. And most of them pass early. Most of them pass in a couple of weeks. So if your outcome is, do I need to do something at four weeks? It's kind of interesting. It's kind of, you know, maybe if there's some tough stones that aren't gonna pass, maybe these things can help. But that's not really what would be of interest to me. You know, when I see patients, I'm not sure, and the people I know, I'm not sure that that's what they care about. What they care about is, if I take this stuff, is there a chance that, you know, I can pass this two or three or four days earlier than I might otherwise? Because they're not needing interventions, right? Their outcome was who needs an intervention? The study really wasn't powered to look at different groups, to look at time to stone passage, to look at any of these things. All they said was, we couldn't find anything in the population at large. So the thing with Tamsulosin is that there is not a big downside. It's really cheap, and the side effect profile in the times used is pretty low, and there is other data that suggests, and a study just came out earlier this year that said, you know what, you can probably push forward the time of stone passage from about 11 days to 7 days, which would be, for some people, worthwhile for like a pill that costs 15 cents. There was an editorial on this trial which kind of said the same thing, had the same concerns, and said, you know what, maybe the author's statements are, are overstating things. Um, it's probably unlikely that any medical therapy is going to take an impassable stone and make it into a passable one, but I have to say that in the right patients, I still use it, and I'll still use it in small distal stones, and this did not change my, my
0: practice. So Dr. Yaffe says it's not time to throw out the baby with the bathwater. The key issues that he had with the study were that 75% of the stones were less than five millimeters, which generally are expected to not require intervention at four weeks, and most of them pass within two weeks. And the study wasn't powered for subgroup analysis based on the stone size and location. Now, there are some newer studies to consider in your decision to prescribe medical expulsive therapy with newer medications. So there was a meta-analysis looking at studies comparing psilidosin, 8 milligrams, versus tamsulosin. So that's xylidocin, 8 milligrams, and it found that this new drug had significantly higher stone expulsion rates and faster expulsion times than tamsulosin. Now, it may be, believe it or not, based on this new study that Dr. Yaffe is just about to talk about, that sexual intercourse at least three times a week, yes, sexual intercourse at least three times a week, might increase the probability of stone passage. Let's hear what Dr. Yaffe has to say.
1: sexual intercourse be an alternative therapy for distal ureteral stones? This is a prospective randomized controlled trial. Um, This was a study done among men in Turkey. And it's interesting because they postulate a mechanism, nitric oxide mediated relaxation of the ureters, and nitric oxide somehow is involved in erection and sexual arousal. And so, you know, you put them together and say, yeah, maybe. So they randomized patients, you had to have sexual intercourse at least three times a week. I don't know if it could be all in one night, but it was, uh, but at least three times a week. And the control groups were Tamsulosin, or symptomatic therapy alone, and if you were in either of the control groups, you had to abstain for a month. So no sex, no masturbation, you had to, you know, and um, they actually found at two weeks, The stone passage rate was uh, 83% in the sex group and a lot lower in the other groups. They had about 167 people. 167 people they approached and they said, listen, you know, you can kind of be in this thing and you can be in this group and, like, no sex for four weeks. And out of everybody they approached, only 11 said they were out. Like, they all said, sure. The Turks, I guess, were very... supportive of medical uh, research, and uh, they, were, they were all in. I don't know, but there were probably some issues of compliance. Um, I don't know how they monitored compliance, you know, pinhole cameras, I don't know. But, uh, and as you might have expected, the loss to follow-up was kind of different in the two groups. Uh, the sex group, they were happy to come back for follow-up. Uh, the other group sort of disappeared. You wonder whether they maybe became less invested in the study. Anyway, a lot of people think that, look, really, there's not a whole lot here, although you might want to use it for your own purposes. But uh, but the one thing that's interesting is that there may be some role for phosphodiesterase inhibitors in stone passage. And I think people are starting to look at
0: that because of the mechanism. When it comes to phosphodiesterase inhibitors, sildenafil might actually aid in ureteric stone passage. There's a study in March of 2016 that showed There was a study in March of 2016 of about 100 patients that showed that spontaneous stone expulsion occurred in 67% of the sildenafil group compared to 40% of the placebo group in this double-blind RCT. So medical expulsive therapy is not dead yet you should still consider Tamsulosin for distal stones that aren't huge. There might be a role for newer medications. And although I can't imagine having sexual intercourse while in the throes of renal colic pain, you might want to recommend to your patients that having sex at least three times a week might help pass their stone. Next, Dr. Yaffe is going to question whether nurse-initiated application of the auto-ankle rules will make a difference to our patients and our flow.
1: Okay, this is a study published in CJM: uh, the effect of uh, triage nurse-initiated radiography using the Ottawa ankle rules emergency department length of K at a tertiary center. Uh, this was done at Vancouver General Hospital. And, you know, it is already known that the Ottawa ankle rules are effective at uh, reducing costs and waiting times. When used generally, it really, we know that nurses can do it. They hadn't had a good study looking at whether nurse-initiated Ottawa ankle rules actually uh, shorten length of stay. So they looked at uh, patients greater than 19 years old within 10 days of ankle trauma, and they trained a bunch of nurses specifically to do this maneuver, the, the Ottawa ankle rule, and they wanted to see whether this could, in fact, impact their length of day. They had some secondary outcomes. And what they found was nurse-initiated Ottawa ankle rules decreased length of stay by about 20 minutes. They found this a little bit disappointing. They, they thought it would be at least 30. Actually, they had said, you know, if it doesn't do it more than 30 minutes, it may not be worth the effort. There's a couple of interesting things that happened in the study. So this is the stuff from Ian Steele's study. I think this is their, our, their baseline uh, X-ray rate in their population. So their implementation phase uh, study, they had about a fracture rate of about 16%. And, and at the beginning, they were X-raying 75%, and they were able to drop that down to about 60%. Uh, by doing x rays. So the VGH, the control group, they had a higher fracture rate in their control group, uh, but they were x raying a lot of people. I, I didn't do the calculations you would expect, though, more, ex- more fractures you're gonna x ray, you're gonna need to x ray more to find them. So they would be x raying more. But um, look what happened here when they implemented nurse mediated Ottawa ankle rules. Their x ray rate went up to 97%. 97, you may as well, like, if you're trying to save time, just x-ray them all, right? Because that might be more, save more time than just doing the rules. So this was kind of interesting. And it's even more interesting because this wasn't a problem with the nurses. In fact, the nurses, they actually only ordered 86% of them. The other other chunk were doctors who said, well, uh, I know you said the patient didn't need an x-ray, but they need an x-ray. So this was doctors out of control. So for me, the interesting thing here is that um, every one of us knows here that we... uh, Do you all work with nursing staff who have discretion in ordering diagnostic tests? Your nurses order diagnostic tests? Yep. So they can order blood work and some x-rays and stuff like that, right? And they'll come to you and say, well, so-and-so is on, so I'm going to order more tests, or Everybody wants something different, so I'm going to order just everything. It's really hard for the nurses, right? When they go ahead and they, they do stuff well, and then somebody comes along behind them and says, well, let's just test everybody. So my point is, when we have protocol-driven things, it's probably important to regroup once in a while, look at what everybody's doing, talk to the nursing staff, and maybe do a little bit of QI and see how your protocols are working. Because over time... You might start at point A, and you might end up uh, just being way off what your protocols should be.
0: So a quick review here. The question is, can our ED flow improve if nurses trained to use the Ottawa Ankle Rule screen patients with ankle injuries before the ED doc sees them? And this was a randomized control trial of 146 patients who were assigned either to standard triage or auto ankle rule application by 15 trained triage nurses. And the primary outcome was median length of stay, which was only 20 minutes faster with nurse-initiated Ottawa ankle rules. The issues were that x-ray utilization actually went up to a whopping 97% with the nurse-initiated Ottawa ankle rules with no missed fractures. And of the 10 patients in the nurse-initiated Ottawa ankle rule group, eight of them had x-rays ordered later by the emergency physician anyhow. So the take-home is nurse-initiated Ottawa ankle rules increase x-ray utilization while not really impacting the length of stay very much. So local quality improvement initiatives should be done for these types of protocols to help improve utilization and patient flow. (laughs) Now, the next topic is going to be on the use of steroids in anaphylaxis. This past February at the EM Cases course, we recorded a live podcast with David Carr, and we talked about anaphylaxis. And one of the key take-home messages was, if the patient fulfills the diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis, they all need epinephrine, and all those patients that get epinephrine should probably also get steroids despite two recent articles that showed that steroids don't decrease the biphasic reactions that we all dread, and they don't decrease relapse rate. Let's hear what Dr. Yaffe has to say about these two articles when it comes to using steroids and anaphylaxis. So
1: a 26-year-old comes in Stung by a wasp, wheezy, crampy, symptoms of anaphylaxis. You treat the patient, patient gets better. You say, you know what, I want to give you some steroids. And the patient says, not so fast, my friend. Do you find that now that patients are saying, I don't know if you normally give steroids, but patients are starting to hear, I'm not sure about steroids. This is a study that was done in Vancouver. This was out of St. Paul's. This study was retrospective where they looked at patients who had come in over a number of years. They had been coded for allergy anaphylaxis. They crunched the data, and they wanted to know, did the use of steroids affect outcomes in the next seven days? Outcomes meaning repeat visits to emerge for allergic problems. They broke them down into allergy or anaphylaxis, and what they found was that If they gave steroids or they didn't give steroids, didn't matter. Didn't matter whether they came back, steroids didn't do anything. And uh, their conclusion was that among ED patients with allergic reactions or anaphylaxis, corticosteroid use was not associated with decreased relapses within seven days. So again, here's a situation where, for me, I'm not sure that this answers the question that I want to know. And I'll tell you what the question is I want to know in a minute. There may have been reasons why even within their methods, the steroids didn't seem to perform better. The bigger issue for me is the way the data was compounded. So this was all data you might have seen last year. Same group came out with a a retrospective study. It was the same data pool where they wanted to see how often do people have biphasic reactions across the board. And they found it's pretty low and they said, well, maybe we don't have to watch them as long. But in their data, In their data of people with anaphylaxis, uh, only 54% of them got epinephrine, right? So these are people who retrospectively fit the diagnosis of anaphylaxis, but only 54% of them got epinephrine. How many of you, if you make the diagnosis, if you write anaphylaxis on the chart, how many of you would have given those patients epinephrine?
0: Now, remember from our anaphylaxis episode, All patients who fulfill the diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis must get epinephrine, period.
1: Right? So I have no doubt that people who come along and look at my charts afterwards might say, well, Joel, that was anaphylaxis, and I'll have to go, I don't think so. I didn't think so. We may be, there may be some problems with the definition. It may be overly inclusive, but this is not our practice, right? anaphylaxis gets epinephrine, right? And they gave steroids to a whole bunch of people who did not get epinephrine for whatever reason. So the question that I really care about is if I get a sick patient who needs epinephrine, a sick, beasting patient, maybe looking like they're going to die, and they get epinephrine, am I going to be comfortable sending them home without steroids? And for me, the answer is no. I still give them steroids. And I don't think, again, we can all do what we want, but I don't think this data is enough to tell me that in that particular patient group, we don't have to do it. So again, you've got to be careful when studies like this come out, who were the patients, who did they look at, and how applicable is it?
0: So just to clarify there, the issues in the study were, first of all, it was a retrospective study as opposed to an RCT and only 54% of the patients diagnosed with anaphylaxis actually received epinephrine. Again, remember that all patients diagnosed with anaphylaxis should receive epinephrine. Also, many patients diagnosed with allergic reaction without anaphylaxis received steroids in this study. In other words, the population they studied was over-inclusive what we really want to know is whether or not steroids decrease relapse rates only in patients with true anaphylaxis who were treated appropriately with epinephrine. So, Dr. Yaffe's conclusions are, this study doesn't provide enough evidence to abandon steroids for anaphylaxis. Next, Dr. Yaffe is going to talk about a study that compares naproxen with cyclobenzaprine, percocet, or placebo for treating acute low back pain in the ED.
1: Okay, in patients with acute low back pain, acute low back pain, do you use NSAIDs? How many use NSAIDs? Okay, how many use narcotic analgesics? Okay, how many never use narcotic analgesics in acute low back pain? Never. Okay, one at the back. Uh, Muscle relaxants? Okay, no muscle relaxants. And acetaminophen? No acetaminophen. So, and I assume some people use a combination of the above. So, this was a trial published in JAMA this year. They took patients, uncomplicated patients, 21 to 65 with acute low back pain. They couldn't have chronic pain, no radiating pain. This was not sciatica. They could not have pain radiating below the gluteal folds. And they randomized them to three groups: an ibuprofen group and a high dose naproxen group, 500 BID. And then with the 500 BID, uh, they would either get placebo or they would get cyclobenzaprine or one oxycodone acetaminophen tablet. Uh, and they could take one or two of those up to three times a day. So they got really high. They got max dose naproxen and they got, I think what some people would say are sub max doses of uh, narcotic analgesics. They all Kind of got better at one week, so uh, a, an improvement in the in the Roland Morris Disability Questionnaire greater than five would be significant improvement. Uh, they thought that their patients were going to improve by 5.6; they improved by 10. So they got better in a week, and uh, there was no difference between any of the groups. There was nothing that could say that you know one was better than the other. There were some more side effects in both the cyclobenzaprine and in the oxycodone group, and mainly in terms of drowsiness, nausea, and vomiting. Right. So their conclusions were that among patients with acute, non-traumatic, non-radicular low back pain presenting to the ED, adding cyclobenzaprine or oxycodone and naproxen alone did not improve functional outcomes or pain at one week follow-up. And these findings do not support the use of these additional medications in this setting. You know, maybe what we don't want to know is what's going on in a week, we we need to know what's going to happen in a few hours and in a couple of days, and they actually all got better pretty quickly. What it doesn't answer is, does a few days of a narcotic pain medication, is that going to make a difference? This study didn't answer that. And the other thing is, everybody got better. Everybody got better. So it would be really hard to argue that they were able to prove that one would be superior than another, because they all got better. So we need to be really careful, because we've all seen the pendulum where we weren't treating pain carefully enough, and now we are causing problems by overprescribing pain medications. And we need to be cognizant of that. I think giving short courses of reasonable doses of short-acting narcotic pain medications is very different than giving refills for massive doses of long-acting narcotic pain medication. So I think we need to be careful of the arguments. And for me, I'm not sure that this tells me that I can't or should not use two or three days of a narcotic pain medication in a patient who may need it. We need to be careful, right? I don't think you need to give somebody three weeks of analgesia for acute low back pain, right? And this is very different from treating chronic low back pain or chronic radicular pain. So maybe we need to keep it short and keep it reasonable doses. I think there is some common ground. Try to limit what you give. If you give multiple drugs, you're gonna get more side effects, clearly. So try to limit it, short courses. And uh, I also think it's important to remember that if you do like NSAIDs, NSAIDs aren't for everybody, right? There's tons of people you do not wanna give NSAIDs to. Renal insufficiency, uh, so if you don't know what their renal status is, uh, elderly people on multiple antihypertensives, um, there may be people you don't
0: want to give it to. So the main issue with this study was that they probably were looking at the wrong outcome measure. You've know, you got to ask yourself, is seven days improved functional outcome or pain at one week follow-up the most relevant outcome measure for our patients? All the patients got better by one week regardless of which group they were randomized to. The study did not address whether short courses of narcotic analgesics in select populations will improve functional outcome and pain within hours to a few days, which is what we really care about. So the bottom line with this study is that it doesn't provide enough evidence to guide us for short courses of narcotic analgesics in select group of patients with severe low back pain. Now, this is definitely controversial. We had talked about this with Ruben Strayer and David Jirlink, In a previous episode and their take, there probably is a risk of giving even short-term narcotic analgesics to patients in the emergency department with pain and them ending up becoming addicts. However, if you look at the literature carefully, you can interpret it very differently. There was one study by Hope out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2015 that concluded that opioid-naive ED patients prescribed opioids for acute pain are at increased risk for additional opiate use at one year. However, this was a retrospective study with a wide variety of conditions, and they didn't reveal the number of tablets or the number of days of the prescription. In other words, the study did not answer the question of whether a short course of opioid analgesics in opioid-naive patients increases the risk of long-term use, dependence, abuse, or addiction. There was another study out of Annals this year uh, by Butler et al. And this study concluded that although short term opioid administration by emergency providers is unlikely to cause addiction by itself, ED opioid prescriptions may contribute to the development of addiction in some patients. Again, this too was a retrospective study, it enrolled only 59 patients. And 82% of the patients that reported non-medicinal use of opioids after they received their ED prescription reported non-opioid substance use or treatment for alcohol abuse before initial opioid exposure. So these were at-risk patients to begin with who were not naive to substance abuse. There was an editorial in the same Annals of Emergency Medicine edition by Perrone et al., and they commented, quote, Simply swinging from the accusations of oligoanalgesia and pressure to prescribe more opioids to an area, to an era of, to an area of opiophobia, will not optimize outcomes. Until better data exists, each emergency physician must make the point of care decision armed with limited data and his or her bedside skills about how to treat a patient's pain. So controversy still exists with this topic. We'll need some more studies to help guide us. In summary,
1: we talked about modified valsalva, Easy, doesn't cost anything. Uh, Seems to be impressive in terms of its ability to to fix about 50% of the uh, SVTs. I think tamsulosin is not dead yet, especially in our environment where it's pretty cheap. But there may be some more exciting alternatives to look at. If you use, have protocol-driven stuff where the nurses are involved in protocols, it's probably good to uh, regroup, see what your protocols are like, and, and uh, do some QI. I think that there's still a role for selective use for steroids in anaphylaxis, and patients are starting to read that maybe not everybody needs them, but I think that that doesn't mean that no one needs them. And I still believe that there's a role for, for narcotic analgesics in acute low back pain in a selected population, low dose, reasonable dose not huge, long acting. And uh, that's it. Thank you very much.
0: Couldn't have said it better myself. Before we go, don't forget to download your free copy of EM Cases Digest Volume 2 Pediatric Emergencies, our free interactive ebook that's available at emergencymedicinecases.com. And finally, we're just about to launch or just have launched, depending on the timing of when this goes out, the brand new q and a pearl of the week so each week we'll email you a great practical question with a quick answer and a reference that'll hopefully be practice changing or at least help you reflect on your practice you can opt in or out of this when you sign up for our newsletter on the website so until next time take it easy